a solid rock that we can stand on. And amidst the storms and the challenges of this life, amidst the uncertainties, and even amidst the persecutions and challenges that we face from other people, Lord, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are trustworthy, that you are that solid rock that we can stand on. And now as we open your word, as we talk about how we respond to the challenges and the objections that other people raise, I pray that you will give us wisdom and insight and clarity in how we can faithfully represent you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I am very passionate about is the importance of getting the gospel out to the world around us. And it's so exciting to me to see God's transforming work in other people's lives. And I pray that for you it's the same thing. Over the next few months, you're going to be hearing more and more about what we call mission focus areas. And mission focus areas are groups of people that we are prioritizing to reach with the gospel. That we are seeking to pray for people in that area by name on a regular basis. That we are seeking to build caring, loving relationships with people there. And that we are seeking to make the most of every opportunity to share the gospel with people there. But if you are aware of of trying to broach the topic of spiritual conversations or talking with people about Jesus, you're also aware of the objections and the questions that people oftentimes raise. And one of the things that you will find people saying if you're talking with them about Jesus or church is that they may say, you know, I don't really care very much for organized religion. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm really spiritual and all that. But, you know, the church kind of turns me off. How would you respond if someone raised an objection or question like that? In our culture, it's going to become more and more common that people do voice things like that. There was a study a couple years ago that showed that a full one-fifth of Americans claim to have no religious affiliation. That means they don't call themselves Christians or Muslims or Buddhists or Mormons or, or Jews or anything. They just are none. Categorically, they don't associate themselves with any religion. Now, not only do one-fifth of all Americans say that, but when you look at people under the age of 30, a full one-third of Americans under the age of 30 claim to have no religious affiliation. And so when we look at this topic of people saying, you know what, I don't really care for church. I don't care for organized religion. This is a topic that we need to be prepared to respond to. And so that's why we're talking about this topic this morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. We're in a series right now that is called Big Butts. Now, just so we don't get confused here, it's butts with one T. It's talking about objections and questions that people have about the Christian faith. And I want to give a disclaimer, actually, about next week's topic, because next week we're talking about the topic of homosexuality. It's a very sensitive topic in today's culture. It's also a topic that I think is very important that we address openly and honestly and biblically. But I also want to give that little disclaimer because I recognize that, you know, if, if for some people who have really young children, it might be a topic that they're particularly uncomfortable with. So if you have young children, just want to make you aware of that. Uh, we do have nursery available. Typically, it goes through age five, but I guess I'm making the executive decision to say if you have children a couple years older than that, feel free. They can use the nursery during the service next week as well if you're uncomfortable with your children hearing about this topic. We aren't going to be talking about it in a graphic way or in a vulgar way way, but we want to address it honestly and openly and biblically. But this week we were talking about this but, but I don't care for organized religion. And when we talk about the topic of organized religion, I think it's important that we clarify terms. What is 
organized religion. Well, I think a very helpful working definition is this, that an organized religion is a faith system with an overarching structure that defines doctrine, guides worship practices, and administrates the organization. I think that's a a fairly helpful definition of what an organized religion is. And when you look at this definition, you have to realize, you know what? Churches typically fit pretty well into this definition. The, The churches oftentimes have a defined doctrine. There are are guidances in how to worship God in churches and how to live your life. And also there's an administration that keeps the organization going. And in today's culture here in America, since Christianity is still the predominant religion, the one that most people are familiar with, typically when people think of organized religion, they think of church. And so oftentimes you hear, you know, I don't really care much for church. And so we're, for the most part this morning, narrowing our focus to this topic of church representing organized religion. At times, we'll broaden the focus as well. But we have the question of why do people have a problem with the church? Why do people have a problem with the church? I think we need to examine this a little bit before we dig deeper biblically into what God has to say about church and organization in our religious practices. Now, some people have a problem with church because of personal grievances. They feel like they have been hurt or dismayed or disgusted or let down by a church or its leaders sometime in the past. And some people's personal grievance with the church is simply that it seems boring or irrelevant. I think of a picture of the Simpsons. Simpsons are kind of classic cultural uh, thing. You see that picture? Most of the family is asleep. The mom's pretty attentive but kind of worried about the rest of the family. Most of the family is either drowsy or asleep or obviously very bored. I think this was a picture of me as I was growing up. I, was, I would try to daydream through the church, uh, church service, just looking forward to when it's done. And so for many people, church seems irrelevant or boring, or they have other personal grievances that cause them to have hang-ups about church or organized religion. Now, there are also what are known as systemic grievances. Systemic grievances point to this idea that the whole system of organized religion is broken. It needs to be done away with. Now, the Internet is a great source for all kinds of things. People can air anything they want on the Internet, and there's certainly no, um, no lack of information and opinion out there on organized religion. So let me show you one graphic that shows some people's perspective of organized religion. It says on the bottom there, if you can't read it, organized religion is like organized crime. It preys on people's weaknesses generates huge profits for its operators and is almost impossible to eradicate. This is not an uncommon opinion of organized religion. There are a lot of people who think that organized religion is one of the biggest problems that we have in the world today. Now, some people would point to the fact that in organized religion and even in churches, there's a lot of hypocrisy that people aren't walking their talk. They're living double lives uh, inside the church versus outside the church. And you know what? There are a lot of well-documented cases of church leaders and church members living hypocritically. And there are many other people who are critics of organized religion and even churches who point to the fighting between churches or fighting between religions. They look at wars down through the centuries and say, well, so many wars can be traced back to religious differences. You look at this, this graphic. Organized religion, killing more people worldwide in my name than any other cause. Well, that is a perspective that many people have out there. It's a very cynical perspective. 
And it is true that there have been wars that are based on religious differences. But that is not the only reason that people fight wars. People also fight wars over land, over money, over oil, over terrorism, over fascism, over communism, over democracy, over Nazism, over pretty much anything else. People fight wars, and we have to recognize that organized religion is not the root of war and conflict. The root of war and conflict is the fact that humanity is sinful and that we are very self-centered and focused on what we want. And what happens when people assert their own sinfulness and self-centeredness, especially when they have power, like world leaders oftentimes do, it it creates very devastating effects, and it can lead into war. And, And again, sometimes this is religiously motivated, but there are many other motivators as well, and it all traces back to the sinfulness of humanity. And so there are a lot of people out there who have systemic grievances about organized religion. Now, there are also a lot of people, especially in America, where people value their independence, where people value what we could call self-sovereignty. Sovereignty means that you are the king of your domain. And a lot of people don't want anyone else telling them how they ought to live. They want to be the one calling the shots in their life. And they don't want even God, or especially even the church, telling them, what they ought to do or how they ought to live. They want self-sovereignty. So we see that organized religion gets a pretty bad rap in today's culture. And it's gonna, this is going to be increasing more and more in the years and decades to come. But religion doesn't just get a bad rap from outside the church. There are even a lot of Christians, fully devoted followers of Christ, who have a big problem with this idea of religion. And, and the way it shows up oftentimes is this dichotomy between religion and Versus relationship. And this is something we need to look at as well, because a lot of people from within the church, solid Christians, have an issue with religion as well. And part of it comes uh, down to how do we define the word religion. That makes a big difference. Now, a few years ago, uh, there was a video that went viral around the Internet. It was uh, by a young man, a very solid follower of Christ named Jefferson Bethke. Uh, The video was called, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. In the first three days that this video was online, over six million people viewed it, and many millions more have viewed it since then. Uh, It's about a four-minute video. I want to show you just a a brief clip of the video. We're going to just pick up in the middle where he's drawing this this distinction between religion on one hand and Jesus on the other. So turn your attention to the screen for this video. Back to the point, one thing is vital to mention, how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage, while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man, which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. So that's just a little clip. And, you know, I think he says a lot of great things in there. But he also shows that distinction, that dichotomy that you see drawn oftentimes between religion and a relationship with God. And we're going to get more to this idea in a, few, in a little bit later. 
But he starts off the video saying, what if I told you that Jesus came to abolish religion? And so you see a lot of Christians who want to do away with this idea of religion. So it begs the question of, is organized religion a bad thing? This is a bad thing, and we need to look from God's perspective, not just taking a survey of people, but look, okay, what does God say about organization in religion? Well, when we look to Scripture, we see that God does value organization. Think back to the Old Testament. Think about how God established the practices for Judaism. He called Moses up to Mount Sinai and gave him a plethora of laws and practices for the Jewish people to observe. He gave them, first and foremost, the Ten Commandments that are quite familiar to people, laws that should govern their lives. God then set up the priesthood who mediates the relationship between God and his people. God prescribed the sanctuary and um, the, tab- or the tabernacle and the sacrificial system for how they should worship God. And he even established certain days and certain weeks in order to celebrate festivals to remember what God has done. So we see that in the Old Testament for Judaism, the way that God set up how people should worship him, much of it was structured and organized. And we see God's value for organization carrying over into the New Testament as well. We look at Jesus. He was the culmination of everything the Old Testament was pointing to. But Jesus as well, one of the first things he did when he started his ministry was to select 12 individuals who would become his disciples. And he invested his life in them. He trained them to become leaders who would lead the church after he was gone. He gave sermons. Jesus corrected errors. He taught that there is a right and a wrong way to worship God. And you look at uh, the early church, it continues this focus on organization, at least to a significant degree. I want to call our attention to this passage out of Acts chapter 2, which, um, which I think really shows at least a, a decent degree of organization. We could even call it organized religion there in the early church. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It's talking about the early church, and it says, "...they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching." And the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, there is a lot going on here. I mean, it seems like it's a really exciting time for, in church history. But we have to recognize there's a significant amount of organization going on here in their practices. First of all, we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What this means is there were leaders there in the early church. And, and the people were submitting themselves to the t- biblical teaching of those leaders. It says they were also devoted to fellowship. They met on a daily basis with one another in each other's homes and in the temple courts. And we see that, that so there was a lot of what could be called organized religion going on here, but it was not a dead, boring type of religion. Because it says they were doing all this with glad and sincere hearts. They were filled with awe and joy. And they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Meaning that as the non-Christians were viewing this group of Christians who was meeting together on a regular basis, 
the non-Christians found this gathering very attractive, that they liked what they saw going on there. It wasn't dead. It wasn't boring. They weren't turned off by it, but they were attracted by what God was doing in this group of Christians who was gathered together. And it says the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. So we see that in this context, there's quite a bit of organization going on. The organization is not what is causing the fruitfulness, but it helps support the growth of the Christians who are involved. Now, you remember that definition of organized religion that we talked about earlier? That organized religion is is a faith system with an overarching uh, structure that defines doctrine, guides worship practices, and administrates the organization. Think about Paul's letters if you're familiar with them. The majority of Paul's letters is focused on these topics. Paul spends a lot of time defining and clarifying and defending biblical doctrine. Paul spends a lot of time clarifying practices for worship and the way that Christians should live. He spends a lot of time talking about leadership and organization in the context of a church. So we see that God has a significant value for organization and that that permeates throughout Scripture. But we also have to recognize that there is kind of this dark side of religious organization as well. And we see throughout Scripture that God is very much against empty religion. God's very much against empty religion. Throughout the Old Testament, God was speaking through the prophets to cry out against Israel when they would allow the, 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 the religious practices to take precedence over humility and submitting to God, over doing justice and doing what is right. When people elevated the religious practices above following and obeying and loving God, that created a problem. You look at Jesus. When Jesus got the most worked up was with religious leaders of his day. I mean, in Matthew chapter 22, or 23, six different times, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. I mean, the strongest condemnation was against the religious leaders of his day. Over in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is talking with the religious leaders again. He says, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. I mean, think about how that would have sounded to the ears of these people who have devoted their whole lives to, to being very, very religious, to observing all the laws to the best of their ability, and even making all kinds of new laws in order to try to please God even more. But it points to the fact that there's a problem that we don't earn God's favor through religious obedience. And that is one of the reasons why you find a lot of Christians even strong evangelical Christians who are against religion because they look at religion as this dead set of principles that people try to follow to earn God's favor. And it is very biblically true that that is not how we earn God's favor. So, so we see that there are a lot of problems if religion becomes empty, if it becomes a set of principles that we try to follow to earn God's favor or if these religious principles and activities take on a life of their own, where rather than focusing on following and glorifying Christ, we focus on maintaining and glorifying the church. There's a big problem when that begins to happen. And so there are certainly problems that come when the religion becomes empty. But as I'm studying Scripture, I'm becoming more and more convinced that God is not against organized religion. He is actually against empty religion. Now, he does say that there is a certain way to worship him. We have to worship him in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ. 
But that fits in the context of organized religion. Empty religion is essentially religion that is void of a life-giving, vital relationship with Jesus. And in those places where the focus becomes more on the religious practices and the church attendance and the obedience and, and all these other things, even though those things can be good, but if those things take precedence over a life-giving relationship with Christ, that is when there is a problem. And I think that when you look at, for instance, Jefferson Bethke's video, that is what he is crying out against, is when these religious practices take precedence, where they become empty and void of, religious, uh, of spiritual vitality with Christ. Now, when we look through Scripture, we also see that God loves the church. Jesus loves the church. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, um, I will build my church. See, church is not a human invention. It's God's invention. I want to turn our attention now to Ephesians chapter 5 to show God's heart for the church. Ephesians 5, reading verses 25 through 27. It's talking to husbands, but we see in here Christ's love for the church. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. So we see here that, that, that Paul is expressing the love that Jesus has for the church, that Jesus gave himself up for the church, that, that he's continuing to refine and purify and beautify the church. The church here is described as the bride of Christ, and this is a, a, a term that applies throughout the New Testament. The church is essentially Jesus' wife, Jesus' bride. Now imagine with me uh, that you are married. Um, if you're not married, just imagine that you are. Um, imagine that a new couple moves in next door to you, and you enjoy getting to know them. You, you invite them over to dinner a few times. Maybe they're a part of your mission focus area, and you want to really get to know them, uh, just build a relationship with them to, to build a bridge that the gospel can flow over into their lives. So you have them over for dinner a few times. They, they have you over to watch a Packers game, and you enjoy talking with them when you see them out in the yard, and, and so you're really enjoying getting to know them. One night the phone rings. The husband of your family, maybe that's you, maybe that's if you're a woman, that's your husband. Who, the husband of your family answers the phone. It's this next door couple, and they say, hey, wonder if, if you'd like to come over for dinner on Friday night. And the husband responds, sure, we'd love to come over. What can we bring? And the couple on the other end of the line says, well, well about this we thing. You know, we really, we like you a lot. But we really don't care much for your wife. How about if you just come over by yourself? How would that make you feel? Husbands? Wives? You'd probably feel um, not just irritated. You'd probably be very angry. You'd probably be like, I'd never want to see them again. I want to go over there and maybe wring their neck, talk some sense into them because my wife is a perfectly lovely woman. Do you know that's exactly what we are doing when we say we love Jesus, but we don't care much for the church? Because the church is the bride of Christ. And we are essentially slapping Jesus in the face if we say, you know what? I love Jesus, but the church really annoys me. Or I could do without the church. And that's what we are doing. We're saying, Jesus, I love you, but I don't care for your wife. And so we see that Jesus, he loves the church. Now back to that Jefferson Bethke video 
Um, it was really interesting to see the response online. Again, online is this forum for everything. Um, the response online to that video, and there are a number of really solid evangelical Christians who, who pushed back against the message, or at least the tone, of Jefferson Bethke's video. And one of the people who pushed back was a pastor in Michigan named Kevin DeYoung. And he wrote a blog post, a very gracious but also critical blog post of what was contained in this video. And it started a very interesting interaction via email and phone between Kevin DeYoung and Jefferson Bethke. And I want to read you one of the emails that Jefferson Bethke wrote to Kevin DeYoung. Jefferson said, I, I just wanted to say I really appreciate your article, man. It hit me hard. I'll even be honest and say I agree 100%. God has been working with me in the last six months on loving Jesus and loving his church. For the first few years of walking with Jesus, I had a warped and poor paradigm for the church, and it didn't build up, unify, or glorify his bride. Jefferson went on to talk about how if he could do that video again, he would have been much more precise and clear in how he worded things to make it clear that he wasn't trying to tear down the church. Because that was the impression that, that people got from that video. And he realized he's having a negative influence on people's view of the bride of Christ. And so we see that Jesus loves the church. Therefore, we need to also. And we also need to recognize that biblically and experientially, the organized church can do amazing things. The church as a body of Christ can do so much more together than if we were all just lone ranger Christians out doing our own random thing. I mean, just think about this testimony we heard earlier of, of the partnership that's, that's growing between American churches and Haitian churches. How they're able to do so much more together than any ministry or church or pastor or church leader could do alone. Or think about the Forever Families ministry. I mean, look at, look at the excitement that there was yesterday and the adoption grants that will be funded through yesterday's event. You know, individuals could do a decent amount to care for orphans and to help adoptive families. But we can do a whole lot more together and have a lot more fun doing it than we ever could separately. So we see that, that when we look at the organized church, it can do amazing things when we are focused on moving in the right direction of following Christ together. And when we look in Ephesians chapter 3, we see that God has tremendous designs and intentions for the church. Ephesians 3 verse 10 says that God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. We need to recognize that God wants to do something amazing in and through the church. And in our audience, it's not just other humans. Our audience is even in the angelic realm. That, that angels are looking on, standing in awe of what God is doing in and through the church. And we get to be partners with God in his work in this world. What an amazing privilege that is. So coming back to this big but for today, of, but I don't care for organized religion, how do we respond when people bring up that objection? Well, I think one thing we need to do is ask questions, clarifying questions, thought-provoking questions. Ask, what do you mean by religion? Get clarification on how they define that term because there are differences in how people define it. Ask them, okay, why do you have such a problem with organized religion? Because we outline there are a number of different reasons people can have problems with it. And if we want to respond in a helpful, constructive way, we have to understand where they're coming from. So ask questions. Start from their point of view and build from there. And, and in doing so, affirm agreements. You know what? If they say, you know, the church has committed so many atrocities down through human history, and that just irks me. Say, so you know what? I agree. 
Christians have done a lot of really bad things. You were right about that. If they say, you know what, I see a lot of Christians just going through the motions. It's not really changing their lives. Say, you know, I do agree with that too. I mean, if, if, if you see an agreement there, affirm it. If, if they're expressing, you know, I've had this experience that really hurt me or really disgusted me with the church or a Christian, and you see, you know, that's a valid concern, affirm that too. That goes a long way towards building a trusting relationship with them. And as you do this, point them to Jesus. Because salvation is not found in religious obedience or even in a religious organization. Simply by coming into the church building and being active here, you're not going to automatically become a Christian. Salvation in your life is only found through a relationship with Christ. And in, in healthy churches, the fellowship we share together and the teaching we share together helps build us up and hold us accountable and encourage us in our walk with Christ. So church is still valuable and, and even, even essential but first and foremost is that relationship with Christ. And finally, we need to be modeling healthy in relationships. By in relationships, I'm referring to these relationships within the body of Christ. Now, if we say, you know, the church is really, really important, but if our actions or attitudes say otherwise, we're being hypocritical and confusing to people. So what we need to do is make sure that even in the midst of all of our busyness, that we are investing our lives in a significant way in the family of God. Because as we do so, rather than being lone rangers or spiritual nomads, we're going to be building up the bride of Christ and helping others follow Christ and helping ourselves follow Christ in the process. This is why in Hebrews it says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So do not give up meeting together, but continue to meet together. Build up the bride of Christ for the glory of God. Because if people see us as a loving community, as a wise community, as people who are very generous, that will be attractive. It will debunk the stereotypes that people have about Christianity and it will really open people's hearts up to the gospel. Now my prayer for us is that we will never see church as trivial. That we will instead see ourselves as the body of Christ, as God's primary vehicle to take the gospel to this world. Now, we do have to recognize in this world that sin is still a reality. It's still messy. And we even have messiness in here in our own lives and in our community together. We have to remember, though, we are a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So we, should, we don't have to have it all together. But we are a place where people can come, bring their mess, and through Jesus Christ, find healing. And my prayer is that as, uh, as we see that God is faithful and as he continues to bring to completion the work that he's already begun in us, that he will radiate through us in the same way that he radiated through that early church. And that just as in Acts 2, we will be praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and that the Lord will be adding to our number daily those who are being saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us Jesus first and foremost to establish a new covenant, and a new relationship with you. Thank you that through faith, we don't have to have any mediators any longer, but Jesus is that one mediator that we need. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us the church family who can encourage us and sharpen us and point us to Christ. And I pray that we as a church family will be growing and allowing you to live through us. And we pray that as we encounter others who push back against the idea of church, that we will be able to, again, point into Christ and that you will be softening hearts and drawing more and more people into your family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.